you would uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 17. 1 Kings 17. We'll uh, start reading uh, at verse 7. Uh, but before we uh, look at the text itself, I want to just admit that I know uh, that some of you uh, here this morning will have problems with uh, this text. Our passage uh, is a, a historical account of two miraculous events, uh, and the claim is that these things actually happened. And to suggest otherwise, maybe uh, to sort of resolve uh, the tension that we're feeling by saying that uh, they're myths or symbols, um, is to make the author of this work say something uh, that he's not intending to say. It's the undeniable intention of the author of Kings to uh, be reporting history, actual events that happened including these miracles. If you were uh, to sit down with him and and ask him questions, uh, he would put these events that we're going to read about in the same category as uh, the coronation of of Queen Elizabeth or uh, the surrendering of Lee to Grant. Uh, These are historical events that actually happened. And so for some of you, this text is going to be problematic because uh, you don't believe uh, that miracles uh, can or do happen. And uh, while I don't have time to sort of give an intensive uh, case for the possibility of miracles here, I want to just speak to this for a minute because I I don't want uh, to pass over the assumption that's operative here uh, so that you miss the word that God has for you this morning. Uh, God intends for his word here to be just as much a word for you, the the questioner, the skeptic, uh, as he does for anyone else here. And so I want to briefly address the question of miracles. Because you might be thinking, how can I believe uh, that miracles uh, can or do happen? Uh, Isn't that an unscientific way of thinking? Aren't we past that? Well, it's, I want to just say it's not as if those uh, who uh, don't believe in miracles are scientific and those who believe in miracles are uh, unscientific. That, that would just not be the case because to, to deny that miracles can happen is, uh, is not a scientific statement. It, it's a, a, actually a statement of faith. It's a statement of faith because to say that miracles cannot happen assumes a previous statement or belief, namely that God doesn't exist. Because if, if God a- exists, then uh, we might expect that such an all-powerful being would, would do things, would be able to act in extraordinary ways that we would think to be miraculous. So the question as we come to this perhaps strange text uh, becomes, how do you know that God doesn't exist? And that isn't a scientific claim. Science uh, gathers data from uh, the world and makes hypotheses about uh, how the world works. Um, But science uh, cannot, it's not equipped to answer the question of whether God exists. Don't take my word for it. Uh, Take the word uh, for it of, of, uh, he's the professor of physics and astronomy at Dartmouth College. Sounds like a prestigious position. He's an agnostic professor uh, who won the 2019 Templeton Prize uh, for his scientific work, and he uh, says that science is not equipped to make the claim that a spiritual being cannot exist. And so to say that miracles, such as the ones that we'll look at, that uh, uh, cannot take place, that's an assertion of faith, not evidence. 
And so my uh, encouragement to you today is we just need to be upfront about that, this, that, that I don't want you to allow your doctrine, your belief uh, that, that God cannot exist, it's a belief statement, I don't want that to cause you to rule out certain conclusions without examining the evidence. So if that's you this morning, if you're skeptical and tempted to sort of tune out until the the singing starts again, uh, let me challenge you to not allow your presuppositions to keep you from engaging uh, with the, the historical sources that we've got in front of us. Because if the Bible is true, God has a word for you. So let's look uh, at that word now. Start at verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, that's Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug, and now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you've said. But first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that she spoke by Elijah. Now after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Let's ask for God's help now. Father in heaven, we come to this text, and we ask for your help, uh, and we trust that you will give it, because your interest in this passage, including in our Bibles, was so that people might see you more clearly, and that's what we want to do here. We want to see you more clearly as the God uh, who is infinite in power, and might, and who is worthy of all our trust. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the last time uh, we opened the book of Kings together, we looked at the rise of the wicked uh, king of Israel, King Ahab, and how he uh, continued to turn the affections of God's people uh, away from God toward other gods, uh, most specifically uh, Baal. And though the people deserved a swift and total judgment uh, for their spiritual apostasy, uh, God's word was at work in Israel uh, to show the people the emptiness of their idols and to turn them back to him, the living God. And one of the ways that God was doing that by his word was by sending a drought. Since Baal, uh, the so-called God that Israel was most uh, bewitched by, was supposed to be the God of rain, God sent this drought. He turned off the heavenly faucets. And he announced this by Elijah, his, his messenger, who uh, told this to King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Uh, and then at God's command, he, he took off across the Jordan River, and there he lived, out of reach of the king and queen, And God provided for his prophet by commissioning the ravens to to send food and and, uh, provided water from the brook for him to drink. But eventually, Elijah's water supply runs out. And then God speaks. Elijah, God says, I want you to go to Zarephath in Sidon. Now, Sidon would have been a really shocking place to be sent because Sidon was the homeland of Queen Jezebel. Uh, and it was a hotbed of Baal worship. Now, as, uh, as uh, the prophet of the Lord, Elijah was a fierce opponent of Baal worship. He was uh, not uh, loved, but he was absolutely hated by Queen Jezebel. And so to go to, to Zarephath in Sidon would have been like being sent into uh, uh, enemy territory. It would have been like uh, Tolkien's Frodo being sent into Mordor, this dark uh, enemy place that you don't want to go. That's maybe what it would have felt like uh, to Elijah. And it was a trek of about uh, 80 or 90 miles by foot. He was asked to do this uh, in a drought to go into enemy territory. And there God said that he would provide for Elijah in the most unlikely of ways, by a widow. Now, in, in, this, in that society, in that culture, widows uh, would have been among the most economically vulnerable people that there were. A widow wouldn't have a husband to provide for her, and, and yet God says uh, to, to Elijah, go to Zarephath and I will feed you uh, from this most unexpected place, this widow. And of course, God had done the unexpected before for Elijah. He had uh, used the the birds of the air to to bring him food day in and day out, fine fare. And so Elijah, once again, hears the word from the Lord and he trusts and he obeys. He gets up and he goes to Zarephath. Now, as Elijah approaches Zarephath, no doubt he's bedraggled, he's weary, he's, he's dusty from his travels. Uh, the narrator gives us a, a marvelous bit of, of storytelling here in verse 10. He says, behold, right? he's, he's underscoring what God uh, has done. Behold, look, can you believe it? Here's the widow that God said uh, he would provide. There in this dusty, dry, drought-afflicted land, Elijah approaches this woman and he asks for some water. And she obliges. So this is her, Elijah's thinking. This, this is the widow that God spoke of. And so as she's going to get the water, Elijah calls out after her, oh, and can you just get me a little morsel, just a little scrap of bread? 
but it's too big a request. When the woman speaks, uh, you can just tell from the text. Her words are filled uh, with uh, resignation. She swears by Elijah's God that her cupboards are bare, that she's got nothing left, and all that she's doing is, is preparing for the final meal for her and her son, and death awaits. Now at this, Elijah could have been uh, sort of put back on his heels. What do you say to that, right? Uh, may, maybe he got the wrong widow. But if there was any uncertainty on Elijah's part, we've got no evidence from how he responds because he responds as God's spokespeople do throughout the Bible. First, he gives words of reassurance. He says, don't fear. And then with a call to obedience, he says, make me some food first and then go feed yourself. And then he attaches a, a promise to support this. He says, the Lord says your resources won't run out. Now, no doubt, the widow uh, was filled with fear. She's a pagan woman uh, facing death with her child. Her, her national God has proved to be um, quite worthless. And so the world as, as she knew it, the, the way things work, the basic assumptions that she had, who was in charge, these have all been uh, upended. And she's about to lose everything. So these are appropriate words for Elijah to speak. Do not fear. But the call to obedience that he follows with would have been quite frightening. It was a call to trust Elijah, a call to trust the Lord with everything. The one meal that he was asking for was her life. It was all that she had. There was nothing else, and he was asking her to trust his God who promised that her food would not run out. Now keep in mind that this was the God of a people uh, that she did not know, uh, she did not likely belong to, this was a God whose holy book that she probably hadn't studied, she probably hadn't grown up going uh, to the church services of this God, and this God's servant is asking her to place all that she has in his hands. This is a call to faith. And the woman trusts God's word through Elijah, and she obeys, and once more God's word, God's promise is shown to be true. Uh, her oil and her flour are continuously filled for as long as the drought lasts. Now, think of how ecstatic uh, the woman would have been. She and her son uh, have been spared from what was uh, seemingly certain death. Uh, she's gone from starvation uh, to abundance. And best of all, now through this Israelite prophet, she's come to know who God really is. So this sounds uh, like a great testimony, doesn't it? Uh, th this sounds like a story that you could uh, turn into a, a great video and then retweet it out to all your friends. Um, perhaps, you know, a, a, there's an artsy shot of, of this woman. She may be in her, her 30s because uh, she was probably, probably younger. And she, she's under uh, the light there and she begins to tell her story and she says, I was a pagan. I, 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 was, I was destitute. I was going to die. And then this man came out of nowhere and, and he called me to trust in God. And you know what? I was at rock bottom. I had nothing. And so by the grace of God, I did. And then at this, the, the chords change and, and you're starting to reach the climax of the video. And she says, and God worked a miracle in my life. Right? He gave me all that I needed. And now every time I look over at that cupboard and I, I see God's provision, I'm just filled with joy because I know who God is. And then it fades to black. 
There'd be a lot to be thankful for in that testimony. The woman can can testify to being uh, delivered uh, from spiritual blindness, miraculously saved from starvation. She gives the glory, the credit uh, to God. He's the one who's done it. Uh, She's got a a newfound joy. She's constantly remembering uh, God's provision, his goodness. But the problem, if I can put it that way, is that the life of faith is rarely this crisp or clean. Putting your trust in the God of Israel doesn't mean that life is uh, sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops all the time. The life of faith, as the woman finds out, is often a road marked with hardship and grief and pain. And faith, and I believe that this woman exhibited true faith when she first met and responded to Elijah, it often waxes and wanes. It increases and, and can sometimes grow weaker. And that's what we see when we look at the second half of this morning's text. Look at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And we know that from the verses that follow that this meant that the boy, who was likely quite young, uh, that he had died. So we can imagine this woman who was uh, likely filled with all the the boundless joy so often found in young converts uh, that she uh, slams into the brutal reality in a world that is marked by sin and death. Her boy, her only boy, is dead in her arms. Now think of all the questions that would have been racing through her mind as she pours out her anguish to Elijah the prophet. Right? She, she says, what have you against me, O man of God? You know, what, what's behind this? Why did this happen? It may have all felt like a cruel game to her. God spares her from, from death uh, in, by starvation only so that she could bury her own son. And what sin or wrongdoing would cause uh, Elijah and his God to torment her like this? Now, if we had the ability to speak into this scene, to this grieving mother, maybe we'd point her to John chapter 9. You might remember the story. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and they see the man born blind. And the question is asked, who sinned that this man would be uh, caused to, to be born blind? And you might remember Jesus' answer there. He, he says, it's not that this man sinned, that his family sinned, but uh, this man's blindness was so that the works of God might be displayed. And that's what we have here in Zarephath, so that the works of God might be displayed. So Elijah takes the child from the woman's arms and he brings uh, her upstairs and he cries out to God in prayer. Here's Elijah, right? Full of faith, Elijah. And just like the widow, he he cries out a a lament. He he, uh, stands in the widow's affliction and he lays it all out at the feet of God in prayer. Notice that faith is not in conflict with a genuine anguish or a lament. But once Elijah finishes praying, he stretches himself uh, out over the child three times. Uh, And frankly, I do not know why he did this. Uh, Commentators uh, don't have a clear answer on this either. But then he resumes his prayer to God. And this time he asks, uh, he he just gives a a very bold prayer of faith with a very specific request. Elijah pleads that the Lord would bring this child back from death. Now, this had never happened before. 
There was no precedent for asking for this sort of thing. You can read in your Bibles uh, from Genesis 1-1 through to Kings, and you won't uh, find someone uh, who's been brought back from death like this. Now, there'd be future instances, uh, but Elijah didn't know those. Yet in faith, he prays for the Lord to deliver the widow's son from death. He knows that he can do nothing, but he knows that God can, and he trusts. And so he prays to God, and the Lord hears, and he grants Elijah's request. And and the boy's eyes are opened, and his lungs are filled with breath, and his limbs begin to stir. He's alive, and he's returned to his mother, and she cries out, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. Now, does this mean that the woman had not believed before? No, I think that the woman was just as, as we sometimes do. She was coming to a, a clearer, a fresher conviction that the things which Elijah said about God were true. And this, her profession in verse 24, it's the, it's the climax of the chapter. It's what it's all leading toward. Now, what uh, relevancy does this remarkable story have for us? Uh, it's great that this woman uh, experienced God's miraculous provision. Uh, but should that be our expectation, uh, that the, the mini wheats in the cupboard won't run out? Or, or, or what about uh, those who, who lose a child? Should they pray that God would raise their child back to life? Should, they, uh, should we copy Elijah's prayer and, the ex- and have the expectation that the same result will come about? Well, no. And while there's a lot that we can learn from Elijah's prayer, his earnestness, his, his, his complete trust in God, the honesty which he brings these requests, um, we have to understand that the purpose of this story uh, was not the miracles themselves. One of the main purposes of miracles in the Bible uh, is there to serve as, as signs that tell us something about who God is or, or signs that verify that God or, or his messengers are true. So these miracles were singular events that, that pointed past themselves. We were supposed to look past the specific provision of flour and oil. We're supposed to look past the resurrected boy. And we're supposed to look to the God whom Elijah the prophet proclaims. And it's here where we get our, our application, our takeaways. The passage is calling us to respond to the God who is revealed behind the miracles and to respond in a very particular way because of who he is and how he's revealed here. And so there's three main takeaways uh, that I want us to consider. First, in the account of, of the Sidonian widow, we have a flesh and blood picture of real faith. Do you ever struggle uh, uh, to think about uh, what faith is? Does it maybe seem a, l- a little abstract to you? Well, here's a picture of real faith at work in the, mu- in the muck and mire of everyday life. Now, true faith, you'll notice, accepts and relies upon God and his promises. When the woman encounters God, all she has to hold on to is the promise of God, and that's what she does. She takes God at his word. We also see that true faith exhibits itself in obedience, that, that while the woman trusts in God's promise, the evidence that she's trusted in God's promise is that she goes and does what Elijah has asked her to do. She makes food for, for Elijah first and then for her and her son. So true faith exhibits obedience. We also see that true faith uh, can be shaken by great trials. 
As we said, this woman has put her trust in the Lord, and yet when tragedy strikes, uh, she, she calls out to Elijah in great anguish. But all the same, she possessed true faith. I think it was this woman uh, uh, that the author of Hebrews had in mind when he said that it was by faith that women received back their dead by resurrection. True faith can go through great trials. Lastly, we see that true faith can be exercised, maybe where we least expect it. In ancient days, this woman was hardly the type of people, uh, person who we would expect to be highlighted uh, for as an example of faith. Uh, she was the wrong ethnicity. Uh, she was uh, the wrong gender. She was the wrong class. And yet God sends Elijah to this starving foreign widow, and he gives her a profound trust in him. Faith isn't just the possession of those who are, are put together. It's the gift of God. And God often uh, gives it uh, to the people we would least expect. But our passage does more than just describe or paint a picture of faith. Uh, in its description, this passage is also a call to faith. See, the biting irony in this story is that outside of, of, of Israel, on Baal's home court, on the lips of a foreign widow, comes this profession of faith that is so clearly absent in Israel. Ahab and, Jeze and Jezebel and Israel at large, they've turned away from the God of Israel, the living God. They've turned to Baal. They've rejected God's voice through his prophet Elijah. And yet here in Baal's home district, the Lord has worked powerfully to bring forth this testimony of faith. Now, the comparison of this widow in Israel is meant to call the readers of this passage to faith to the surprising faith of this widow. It's maybe like uh, uh, how a parent might challenge uh, their, their own kids uh, by pointing to the child's friend uh, when he comes over and he puts away the dishes without asking. You know, it's like, why can't you be like uh, little Johnny over here? He, uh, he puts his dishes away without, without uh, asking him. And the expectation is that Johnny doesn't live here. He doesn't know the rules of the house. He, he doesn't benefit from the care of the house. And, and yet... He, he knows how to act, right? The, 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 uh, the comparison is meant as a challenge to the child, and that's what we see here. It, it's, it's a challenge to the covenant people of God. See, many of us uh, come to this text, and we're not the widow. We're not coming in the widow's shoes, but we're coming as Israel, who uh, is just hanging in, in as the backdrop to this story, as the negative example we stand as Israel being called out for our idolatry. So for those who have grown up in the church and have had God's promises regularly before us and who have learned the stories of God's dealings with his people, this is a challenge. How much more should we turn from trusting in our idols to trusting in God alone? I'm sure we don't worship statues of Baal, but we succumb to much more subtle idols like romantic love and financial security and living for attaboys. We need to turn from these things and trust that God alone can give life and satisfaction. And so we get a picture of faith so we might understand what faith looks like and we get this call to faith that we might uh, put our trust more firmly in the Lord. But we also get the reason for faith or an encouragement to faith. 
And we, we get this by uh, God helping us to see more clearly who he is as the Lord uh, who has power over life and over death. Specifically, God wants us to see that he's not a, a provincial God. Uh, he's, he's a God without borders. He's a God who's not hemmed in by limit, limitations. He's infinite in power and might. He's a God whose power to deliver reaches into the most spiritually dark places, even Sidon, even death. In the ancient days, it was, it was a, a common belief for people to think that gods had uh, jurisdictions or they had uh, power over certain areas. So uh, there was the god of the Sidonians uh, who, uh, who uh, ruled over Sidon. There was the god of the Assyrians who ruled over Assyria. There was the god of Israel who was over Israel. That was the common understanding of the ancients. Well, this is the very idea that God wants to shred to pieces in this passage. The purpose behind his miracles was to attest to his boundless power, and to call us to trust in him. Sidon was Baal's turf. But as these powerful miracles show, Baal had no power at all. He had one power attributed to him. He was supposed to give life by giving rain. He had one job, and he couldn't do it. Not even for his most loyal supporters. But where Baal fails, the God of Israel can and does give life. Even in the midst of the spiritual darkness uh, uh, where, where Baal is worshipped and which suffocates the people, here the God of life breaks in. He promises beforehand what he's going to do and then he accomplishes it when the woman's flour and oil are not run out. And so we know that the Lord God is the true God, the God of life. And just as, as the miraculous provision shows that God's able to preserve life beyond the borders of Israel... The second miracle that we see shows that God is supreme even over death's dark kingdom. Even the worshipers of Baal acknowledged that Baal himself didn't have power over death. It was a basic belief among worshipers of Baal that the one person that Baal couldn't resist was the god Mot, the Canaanite god of death. And each year in Baalism, uh, the mighty Baal was captured by the god of death, and he was killed, and he couldn't rescue himself. He was only freed from death when his wife, the goddess of war, hacked death to pieces, and then Baal would be freed for another year. So when in our story, the young boy dies, he, this boy, he is crossed over the borders, uh, which separates life from death, and he is crossed into the kingdom, for, which will not yield itself to Baal. But the point of the story is that death must yield to the Lord of life, the God of Israel. In returning the boy from death, he shows that he's not only the Lord who can preserve life, but he is the God who can deliver from death. He holds both life and death in his powerful hands. And this is the God who invites you to trust in him today. This is the God who invites you to believe him to embrace him, to take hold of his promises. Now, if you haven't placed your faith in this God yet today, I, I want to ask, what is stopping you? Why shouldn't he be the one to put your hope in? He has supreme power over life and death. He's a God who has demonstrated in the story of the widow that he is able to bring life to the most dark places where things are most hopeless. 
He is the God uh, who, who uh, elsewhere in Scripture says that, that those who come to him, he will not turn away. He's a God who shows care and compassion to this pagan widow. She's not beyond his reach. But this is not only an invitation to those who have not yet believed and are outside the church. This is a call to faith for those within God's covenant community. While the invitation goes beyond the church, the message of 1 Kings comes first to the church. It's a call to us away from placing our trust in the false gods of this age, in money, in sex, in pleasure, away from placing our trust and hope in the idols of the the heart uh, of control and comfort and power and the approval of others, and to put our trust in God once more. You see, our idols idols tell a message. Our our idols are are part of our functional theology. We've got a, a theology which we say with our lips, and then we've got a theology which we live by. And when we're seeking to find life and to find meaning and to find ultimate satisfaction in stuff and in other people, we're saying that we don't think that God can provide here in this realm what I think I need. So when Israel turned to Baal, they were saying that God could not give them life. He couldn't send the rain or make the crops grow. This was an area they did not believe God could deliver in, and so they turned elsewhere. Their God had limits. And we do the same thing when, we, when our hearts manufacture idols. We turn to our idols because we think that God has limits. We're operating as if God cannot give us joy or the satisfaction that we're, we're craving And so we turn to our kids, we turn to our careers, we turn to our our latest evaluation because at a functional level, we believe that these are things that God cannot give because he's at best a limited God, or so we think. But our passage challenges us at just this point by, by showing that the God of Israel is the Lord over life and death. He is the Lord without limits, without borders. This God uh, is God alone, and he is worthy of our worship. And these miracles, the, the provision, the raising of the child, these were signs and testimonies of God's boundless power over life and death. But these were signs that anticipated the clearest sign of all, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There in the incarnate Son of God, he he gave himself over to death, to die a death he didn't deserve to die, so that he could show that he had power over death itself, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death and to be the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who has been raised to a life uh, that is imperishable. And he has showed us in this that he is truly God Almighty, God without limit, God without borders. So that's the invitation to us this morning, a call to see this God, see him as the Lord over life and the Lord over death, and to put our trust in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we might read the story of the miraculous provision and the raising of this boy and and his deliverance from death. Uh, And yet, even as we read it, it might be hard for us to wrap our minds around. But Lord, may we not get caught up in the whys 
or, or, or sorry, rather, in the hows, but might we uh, see these miracles as signs that attest to your power and who you are as the God who is powerful and reigns over life to give it and who reigns over death. You are the God who has shown yourself in your son. You are the God who has shown yourself to have defeated death and you will plunder death and take your people out of the grave so that we will live with you. And so we have every reason to turn from our idols and to trust in you. We ask for your help, that you would help us to see clearly where our hearts have been deceived, where we've been trusting in other things, where the assumption of our functional theology is that you are a God with limits and that we would turn again to you, the boundless, infinite, almighty God, and trust in your provision and care and love for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please uh, stand with me as we sing our song of response, O oh, the love of my Redeemer. <laughs>